Well, we'll see how this goes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sanctus Forum. I am Michael Stewart Robb, better known as Mike, and this is Conspiracy Conversations. We talk about Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, um, section by section, and we have a guest today. Our guest is Mary Poplin, um, who I'll introduce in a second. But to just let you know, um, this is going to run for, I don't know, somewhere around an hour or something like that. So if you don't want to just sit and watch, there's a podcast associated with this. I think you have to look for Sanctus Forum, and or you can go to our website, sanctus.institute, and you can find the links to the podcast there and have an audio-only experience. While you're there at the website, do sign up for our almost monthly newsletter, and then you can find out about what Sanctus is doing otherwise. And subscribing to a this YouTube channel, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, or subscribing to the podcast, um, also helps us keep in touch with you. But that, that newsletter is the best. Yeah, so I'm not quite sure how this is going to go, because I am not exactly a liberal Christian, and not exactly somebody on the Christian left. Although, I might be wrong. One of the things about this is there's kind of spectrums here, and you can kind of look to your left and look to your right. This is my right. That's my left. Yeah, okay, I got it in the right direction. And you'll you'll see people there, and and they will think that you are either right or left, depending on where they stand. So um, it's a little, can be a little confusing. And, um, but we want to try to get some clarity on that, and I have invited a guest who's um, going to help us with that. Mary Poplin is a longtime professor at uh, Claremont, Claremont Consortium, which are a bunch of different colleges in California. She taught uh, education there for years, and she's also the author of uh, Finding Calcutta, which is about uh, Mother Teresa, and if you're, if you're too young, you might actually not know who she is, or maybe you do, hopefully you do. Um, you know, Google her, uh, which is funny to say that you should have to Google Mother Teresa, but Google her. She was a, um, her, the Sisters of Charity were, uh, did some, uh, a lot of good work for, uh, Jesus in Calcutta. And, um, Mary is also the author of a book called Is Reality Secular? And, um, she has recently retired from Claremont in order to return to her native state of Texas, where she's hoping to write some more, and so I guess some is already being written. Well, um, anyway, hello, <laughs> hello. Mary. <laughs> hello. Welcome. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. Um, well, should we just tell them? I don't. <laughs> it's your podcast. <laughs> I, I messed up. This is this is this is the second time that we're doing this. I forgot to push record on the camera, so um, yeah, there you go. I can act like I I haven't been talking to you for 
half an hour. <laughs> um, Mary. Um, yes. You are you are um, working on uh, some new book or something. Can you, can you share a little bit about what you're thinking about? Well, I'm looking at particular issues that are sort of hot today, like the left versus the right, for example. That's the one I'll, I'll use here. Um, and what that would look like, what does the Bible say about that? So if you really look up all the times the Bible's talking about the left and the right, it always says, do not turn either to your left or your right. Hmm. Even those cows that are taking the... <laughs> the the uh, goods back to the back to the Israelites the uh, Ark of the Covenant uh, no one's guiding them but they evidently turn neither to the left or right so yeah. uh, the, the left and the right uh, are not biblical principles interesting they're recognized in the Bible but they're not recognized as something we ought to be doing yeah so yeah yeah. Hmm. Well, that sounds um, perfect for what we want to talk about today. And if I haven't said it already, um, the section that we're going to talk about is here. Um, chapter 2, it's called The Gospel on the Left. Everybody has a different edition, but my starts on page 50. Um, and the first section here is The Gospel as Entirely Social. Um, what did you... What do you think of this um, section? I know you read it yesterday and as we usually do, but what do you think of this when you read it again for preparation to talk with me? Well, I think I, I concentrated on really probably what he was doing at first, and that is he's what he's saying is we have reduced the entire gospel to love. I mean, you, you can jump mm -hmm. in here and say, yeah. but I mean, that's what I... You know, the last reading, that's what I would say. He's re he, he says that we have reduced the gospel to love. And the problem with that is we don't know what love is. Hmm. So we've yeah. also morphed the concept of love. And, um, and it no longer, he says, it doesn't, because we've morphed it and we've sort of given it a personal touch, like whatever, you know, love is to you versus love right. to me, right? Right, right. Um, then it's no longer that we can actually believe that we're loving and not connect it to our individual lives. We can yeah. do it as a, like a concept or something. Uh, and so it doesn't really affect our relationship with our neighbors. It's not connected. In, and this is probably his big point. It's not connected to a life transformation. Yeah. To a transformation to a life abundant uh, because yeah. of the way we've, we've separated it from God. And once you separate it from God, you've got a humanistic principle that uh, doesn't have any necessarily any guidelines. So, you know, what used to be um, the norm would be that you would have men and women who would fall in love and get married, right? And stay married. Okay. And now uh, people may not even get married, but they still say, they still believe that they're, in love, right? Or they're right. not necessarily just in love, but they're following love. So it has a concept, but the concept's very abstract in right, terms right. of the way we live our lives. Right. Now. It's a bit of a, a free-for-all with respect to what love 
means right. this central principle, which right. Dallas would connect to the disappearance of moral knowledge, as he right. called it, that mm -hmm. nobody's even looking for a a unifying principle of love that might exist apart from us, what we right. think about it. Um, nobody is all that worried or thinks it, they don't even know that it it exists, so they're not they're not looking for right. it. So as far as you know, what what love is for me um, or for our church, let's let's right. keep it in Christian terms, um, right. can be can, can be different from what right. it is for another church or for other people. And I saw a, an instant when um, Dallas was speaking uh, one time when uh, the issue the the word was not love; it was truth. So. Mm -hmm. Um, he had been speaking for a number of uh, minutes and uh, had opened for questions. And this young co-ed uh, goes to the microphone and says, <laughs> pretty, in a pretty disgusting manner, she said, truth, truth, truth. You just keep talking about truth. What is truth? Well, Dallas, who always took everything very seriously, right? People's questions seriously. He uh, stood at the podium for a moment and he kind of looked down and then he looked up and he said very calmly, truth is reality and reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody was just silent. We were just, <laughs> it's one of those moments when you just gasp that somebody has said something so true that you've yeah, got to think about yeah. it. You know, there's there is for for you, Mary, and and for everybody watching, listening. There is a a little um, talk. It's about an hour long. I think Dallas speaking at UCLA on truth. It's just called truth, mm -hmm. and and he comes at it in this very typical way that he, well, typical for him, and that he can take sort of very serious philosophical issues and just present them to a college audience. So right. basically not his colleagues, but he's he's teaching. Right. Right. And he's teaching to people who want to know how to deal with their lives and mm -hmm. deal with mm -hmm. their world. Um, mm -hmm. It's a really good talk. And if I get to it, I will try to put that in the description for oh, the good. video here so people can can see that. Right. Um, but when you get into this sort of question of of moral of morals and the moral of love, mm -hmm. it is there is this question of well what is what is true love? Right. And there I do I do wonder if it is for um for Christians who are on the left, um, a total free-for-all. Because one one thing you will always see is they are very concerned about structural evils mm -hmm. and, and getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. So um, they're concerned about things like, like slavery. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you could imagine a definition of love which said, you know, love is being committed to removing structural evils such as mm -hmm. slavery from the world. Mm -hmm. And yes. and then, you know, the list goes on. 
of other sorts of structural evils that mm-hmm. um, some of these people who serious, you know, they're very serious about committing their life to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. Yeah. Right. Is there is there somebody there um, who you really respect who um, is working in that area of trying to get rid of structural evils um, or um, somebody that you've met, Christian, not Christian? um, Well, I I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure I have, but I haven't really thought about it recently. But I mean, there are groups that are working, whole groups that are working against slavery, right? Mm -hmm. And the groups right now working uh, with people in the Ukraine or, you know, mm-hmm. there's always groups that are concerned about that, I think. Yeah. Um, in, um, in every city, you've got people that people know care about social justice, for example. Yeah. They care about it. And, yeah. um, and there are churches that care about, you know, you, yeah. you know, you kind of say, well, that church cares about this um, and worries about that. So, I think um, I think there's always I, I think probably every single person has some idea some issues that really they feel called to address in yeah. one way or another. Yeah. Either yeah. by not just not participating in it. Yeah. Or by working actively against it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you 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 taught in education, uh, right? And I assume mm-hmm. you're teaching people to go and work in public schools as teachers. Um, I was mostly working with PhD students who had already, they were already in the public schools, but they were interested in social change, uh, largely. And, uh, they were interested in the, the fact that, uh, children of the poor don't come out of school with the same, uh, knowledge that children who are middle-class come out with. They don't have the same teachers. They don't have the same buildings. Um, so people who see that, you know, I've, I've known that a lot. I did, I personally did, um, with, uh, with a group of great graduate students, three year study of 77 highly effective teachers in the most underperforming schools in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So they were the, they were the stars in school. You know, they didn't act like it or anything like that. But all we did uh, was to get the superintendents to allow us access to the achievement data. And you would see the achievement data was really sad. Most kids went through school most of the time and they they barely ever raised their achievement level. Hmm. And then you'd see this one teacher where a child would get in their class and they might make four years progress in one year. Hmm. So, you know, then you then you've got a little anomaly to study, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. then we studied what does a, a highly effective teacher look like? Okay. Well, now you've now you've got me now, hooked here. <laughs> so um, give, give me give me at least <laughs> okay. one insight. Okay. There's several. Number one, um, I'll give you the big one is they're they are both strongly encouraging the students and strongly uh, 
un, unwilling to take any uh, buff off them. Okay. There's not going to be any silliness going on in their classroom. I mean, mm. somebody might say something silly and they'd all, you know, the teacher would laugh and things like that. I don't mean they were just stoic like that. But you were not going to, like, mess up the classroom. Mm. <laughs> you just mm. weren't going to, you weren't going to act out in a way that was going to be disruptive. Mm. And, um, and the other thing is they were very individually with students. They knew the students very well, and they were almost always taking students either uh, being with them at lunch or being with them after school. Students that they could see were in trouble. Hmm. Not, I'm not talking about academic trouble, but they could just see there was something troubling them. And, um, and so they would have conversations with them, encourage them. And um, that, it, it was very nice to see. And interestingly, even though they were very tough academically than they were, they really pushed kids to work very hard. Um, they constantly told them they could do it. And if they were having trouble doing it, raise their hand, then they'd be right there. And they were right there. Hmm. The other sort of interesting uh, observation, which relates to what I just said, is they never sat down at their desk. Huh. If there was a class in their room, they were always wa walking around the room, hmm. row by row. Hmm. And so, you know, it gave the students the knowledge, number one, you're never going to get away with anything here. <laughs> number two, you're always going to have help. If you're working on something and you're stuck, the teacher's right there. Yeah. And they're going to, and they're going to see your face, you know, that you're having trouble and they're going to walk over there and help you, or they're going to respond to your asking them to. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, physically it's a really uh, tiring position, right? Yeah, right, right. And they set some rules, pretty, you know, pretty tough rules. So uh, <laughs> I remember this one guy who started the class. He was an African-American teacher in the high school. And he said, let me just get something straight. This is the first day of class, right? Let me just get something straight. This is my room. I own everything. That door is my door. <laughs> this door is my door. Those windows, they're my windows. <laughs> hmm. And if you want to mess up with them, you, you need to go through me. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's, and yet, that's, they were funny. That's wonderful to hear um, <laughs> people in those situations, uh, in those schools doing, um, doing a good job. Great job. In very, in, in rough places. I mean, yeah. they didn't have a lot of equipment. They didn't have yeah. a lot of yeah. stuff yeah. going on wasn't necessarily a nice building. Well, let's talk now a bit about, you know, let's depress ourselves a little bit. And, you know, in the field of education, staying there, what is something that's really not working well that somebody who's concerned about structural evils, somebody who might be, you know, say Christian on the left could, could think we got to take this on. Well, I think it's the thing that I started with, that there are schools in the poorer communities that consistently under, whose students consistently underperform. Yeah. And part of that is that the best teachers end up being placed in the best schools. Okay. That the best economically, economically schools, economic mm -hmm. schools. So um, best parts of the city that are economically uh, sound. 
And um, I think that's one of the things um, because, you know, I, I think the poor are less likely to, to uh, contest what's going on, maybe less likely to know what should be going on. Hmm. Uh, and so, um, so you want to kind of cover your bases in the, you know, around the population that does. But okay. in a way, it should be the reverse. Okay. Uh, the other thing that really needs to happen is teacher education is not doing a good job right now of teaching people how to teach. Okay. You know, they're doing a lot of the things that, that you hear about a lot today, socio-emotional learning. Okay. There's no evidence that socio-emotional learning has helped anybody. Um, there's, uh, and that's the other thing. There's this disconnect between research and what's actually going on. Mm. And um, the other thing is the other, other thing that teachers are being trained in is are the race issues. Well, the race issues are important, but they are not te the teaching of reading. They're not the teaching of spelling. They're not the teaching of mathematics. You know, if you yeah. don't know how to teach mathematics and you don't know how to teach geography or whatever you're supposed to teach, then, uh, then just knowing uh, that there's these inequities are not going to necessarily help you. Yeah, inequities. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, if there was one policy change that you could make, we make you educational dictator in America for a day. <laughs> what would you, what would you change? Um, I would make teacher education. Well, two, I'd make teacher education more rigorous. I don't know and if I this would is the get, second one's going to count now. I just I said one. All right. I know, but, I, give it to but us. I already said the second one. You got to get great teachers in the in the schools with the students who are going to have the most trouble okay. or have the least background. They may not okay. even have trouble. They just don't have the background to do what you're asking them to do. Yeah. 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 So sorry. You, yeah. It was two. I yeah. Admit it's it. all right. It's all right. I admit it. Do you, do you, uh, do you know Tony Campolo? You know I just vaguely, yeah. Vaguely, I okay. Mean, he taught at Eastern College. It's a school over in Pennsylvania. He came okay. to my school um, when I, I don't know, <laughs> I was a junior or a senior, and he spoke. And he spoke on education, and he, he told a story about a, well, first he told a story about a school that's, um, grabbed students and did an incredible job with them with very, very little money. And it was in a mm -hmm. basement and it was just nothing, nothing special whatsoever. And they just invested right. in the kids and they did a really good job. Mm -hmm. They told a story about uh, a teacher who landed one of these really great jobs at a school where it was unlikely that they would get the job and, you know, students all are sure to go to college and one of these kind of schools there. And he said that his reaction to that was, what a waste. <laughs> and he felt like this, this uh, teacher, who is a very brilliant person to begin with, um, should have taken that ability that they had to teach and gone to... Um, work with uh, people who, where they could really 
I guess uh, this is sounds cliche, but really make a difference. Right, right, right. And I, I remember that now still. I really quite remember that moment of, of him coming and speaking to us about that and saying, you know, just mm-hmm. use the abilities that you've been given, your intelligence, mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. you did well at school or whatever, and mm-hmm. take it and invest it somewhere where people don't have the ability mm-hmm. to get those sorts right. of things. Right. It was a whole network of schools, and I, I think they probably still exist. It was, um, they're called the KIPP schools. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they did precisely that. They took great teachers and put them into these uh, schools. And the schools, the classrooms were very small, but the kids were from, uh, you know, impoverished neighborhoods. And I think it, I'm trying to think of what KIPP stood for. Uh, maybe it'll come to me later, but um, but they they were a network all over, and they still are. I know that there's a whole KIPP Academy in Dallas still. I think they're all over the world, but all over the country rather. Um, but they were they precisely did that. They tried to take the best teachers and put them into these uh, schools that were not pub- they're not public schools though. Yeah. So, and they have very few, they don't have a lot of middle management. Um, mm-hmm. So, but that's pretty interesting. Well, knowledge um, is power. That, that's what it was. Knowledge is power. Uh-huh. Kip. Yeah. Oh yeah. Kip. Right. Knowledge is power. Yeah. <laughs> well, getting, getting back to um, uh, Dallas's um, section here. Uh, we're talking about gospels, uh, the gospel on the left, but the gospel, well, where the left has been has sort of shifted over the years. Um, and even today, I think there's a, even a bit of a datedness here to his book. He uses um, John A.T. Robinson as an example, um, for me, page 52, of a Christian who um, sort of typifies being on the left. And I actually own a couple of his books. Um, I've already showed these to to you, Mary, here. Right. This is right. this one here, um, Honest to God. Now, I mean, I wasn't around when this was published, but when it was, every Christian who was going to church read this book, even if they knew that they weren't going to like it because it was so... Um, it was provocative, and sure. um, I mean, he does in the end um, profess some belief in God, but a lot of the honest to God bits are being honest about how serious naturalism and you know humanism right. are right. for us now, and sort of science has moved on, and in a sense, he's trying to scrape together some bits from his Christian heritage. Um, to make the church meaningful. Right. Um, now, I mean, he's he's kind of, um, like I said, this is the 19, 1960s here, um, and Dallas, Dallas read this book as well, um, and it was a big deal, and then there were a lot of responses to it. It's connected to, maybe you know this one, uh, Mary, The Secular City by Harvey, Harvey Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very similar, he was at, right. um, at Harvard. These are very similar type 
type thinkers. But even that is a bit dated in terms of where the left is. Right. And I've got even some older sort of visual aids here. Um, <laughs> see, this is my teacher, you know, this there, visual aid. So I didn't grab my Schleiermacher books. They're, they're back there. Friedrich, <laughs> I'll say it with a, an English accent, Friedrich Schleiermacher um, <laughs> is generally thought to be the father of liberal theology. So early 19th century and German um, taught at the University of Berlin at the same time as Hegel did. Um, Hegel and Schleiermacher didn't like each other. Um, but he was very inspiring um, for a, a kind of an elite. So most right. German churches wouldn't have known anything about that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And liberal theology was mainly kind of a, um, yeah, an elite sort of thing that professors talked about. Um, and it gradually sort of left Germany. Um, I've got here, this is more end of the 19th, early 20th century, Ernst uh, Trollsch. Mm. I'm trying to say them with an English accent. Albrecht Ritchel and <laughs> Ardolf von Harnack. Um, these are kind of your trio of liberal German theologians. Okay. Right? Um, I think, and this I one think here. so. I mean, I read about the early ones, the Boltman. Yeah. You know where Boltman went off and... Uh, I read a lot about Boltman and Linneman. Linneman had been one of his students who saw that he was going off and tried yeah. to, uh, you know. Well, Boltman is about, he's contemporary with Bart, with Karl Bart. Yeah, is right. that So they're 20th century people. And yeah, the interesting later. thing, and I was going to get to them here, mm -hmm. is that these guys here... Um, all, I think, I'm not sure when they died, but they all ran up against the wall of World War One and World War Two. Oh, right. So if you read these guys, they're all very hopeful about the world. They think the world's going to get become a better and better place. They're very hopeful about um, the humanist project, the way in which Christianity can transform uh, society. They also mm -hmm. think of culture as like so German culture or European culture as pretty much symbiotic with with the church and growing up mm -hmm. together and then all of a sudden you have these these world wars and that hopefulness kind of drains out of right. them and what right. you get instead um, is um, what what kind of rises from the ashes and Dallas talks about this a little bit in the very first page there of our, of our section is um, a focus on um, liberation and oppression and sort of structural evils right. um, which which these old guys wouldn't have really thought much about mm. and uh, but people like um, John Robinson, would have uh, would have started to care more and more about. Mm -hmm. And this is now where I want we can kind of maybe merge into your story a little bit of um, uh, you you didn't you didn't spend your whole life in the church. 
did you? No. <laughs> no. I didn't. <laughs> um you you grew up in the church, but in a sense that at some point was no longer leading important thing for you. Is that right? Right. I mean, I grew up in a church really, to be honest, that wasn't really preaching the gospel. Okay. Okay. It was preaching the social gospel. So okay. it was already, it had already changed. Uh, so it was a major denomination. And um, I think that where, um, where Dallas kind of pinpoints this is that you can, you know, how he talks about, it's not always, I think he's talking about love here. It's not necessarily connected to individual people's lives mm -hmm. or their neighborhood. It's not connected yeah. to their life, really. It's, yeah. it's not transforming, I think it might be even the word that he uses. It's more like yeah. sin management versus transformation of an individual. Right, right. And the sins, and this is very important, the sins are social sins. They're right. things that the system is doing and not necessarily things that, that I'm, I'm doing. Right. And even the things that you're doing more from being, you know, just seen as wrong in the society to just seeing it as wanting as a choice you have. Right. Sure. Sure. Whether or not you, uh, you know, have relationships, sexual relationships with many people or uh, yeah. just over and over or you never get married, but you have children. Yeah. I mean, those things are all um, those are they're not they're no longer considered the sin that they would right. be considered before. And that that was a major issue for the Christians on the left um, from the right. 1960s. I mean, I want to find the quote here in Dallas. It's not a very big thing, but um, um, actually, he doesn't have as much of it as I thought. He talks here on page 50 for me. He talks about how participation in the struggle of uh, black Americans mm -hmm. then kind of moved into issues for the war on Vietnam and then he says later came issues of gender, sexual preference, ecology, speciesism, and generalized correctness. Um, what I was looking for, and I didn't find it there, was um, sexual revolution. Right. Um, which was, was with, well, all Western countries, really, um, from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and on, and this is something that many churches on the left really got behind, right, right, and wanted to change the the mores of of sexuality, mm -hmm. right? Yes, and to and to be more open to divorce and you know yep. Yep. relationships without any kind of commitment and things like that. Yes. Yep. They did, and they did. <laughs> Having been a professor at, uh, you you always refer to it as a secular university, um, uh -huh. but um, you meet a lot of people, maybe in the church or not in the church, who are left-leaning. Um, what do you think is, 
we mentioned love, but what do you, what do you think is really motivating them? What's, what's the, what's, what are they really after? They're after um, what they believe would be good. And that is that the society would have fewer rules and um, people would be able to fulfill their lives the way they personally decide to do that. Okay. And I think that the, the biggest loss in that view is that living that way has consequences they don't admit. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's, there are consequences that, um, that people will experience that are not, they're not warned about. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the pulpit for a moment. I mean, war, okay. warn, us, warn us about them. I mean, what, what are sort of, what sort of suffering or misery should we be worried about? Should they be worried about or should we worry about Yeah, I mean, what culture? kind of consequences? I mean, maybe it's not personal. Maybe it's other kinds of consequences, but what? Well, let's see. Being really open sexually will give you diseases. <laughs> yeah. You want to be really a little uh, hard-nosed there. Um, the, it, it gets you to a place where I believe there's, because there's no, um, let's see, how can I say this? There's no hard and fast boundaries, so everything can move. So, for example, when I first started, you know, I grew up in a conservative home, but when I first started experimenting with life, right, uh, I would move a little more to the left and I would say to myself, oh, it's okay, everybody else is doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so then you move a little more to the left, and I'm using the left as the, <laughs> the way I went, um, and, you're, and you're saying the same thing, I, I'm, you know, Everybody else is doing it, and at least I'm not like the people over there. Okay. Mm. Pretty soon you are the people over there. Mm. You're with them, and now you're saying the same thing about the people further over, right? Even yeah. though, you know, this is the consequence that they're experiencing, but I'm not that far over, right? Yeah. So it's it's a sneaky thing. It's like, um, I don't mm. know, um, watching pornography, right? So, oh, well, it's just once, you know, or it's yeah. just, it's not so bad. And then the next time it's worse and worse and worse. And you're yeah. pretty soon addicted to that or alcohol yeah. or any of anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it, you know, the enemy of our souls has a lot of great tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you don't have a, a kind of permanent comment, moral plumb line that you know is agreed upon by other mm. people in the society, even if it's not very many people in the society, then your shifting is going to, has no um, boundaries. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that's what happens and ha certainly happened to me. You kind of, you first go into like secular humanism and you start renaming sins as moderate moderate sins or and then they're not sins at all and then 
it's just as good as anything else. You know, children, children born out of wedlock, living together with, two, you know, two people without any real commitment. Hmm. And then um, you go into something even, even more specific about liberal theology where you're to you're, you're supposed to be spiritual but not religious right okay that's a big that's a very big thing these days okay i'm so spiritual I'm, but i'm not religious right i don't think i've ever said that and yeah, so, so unpack haven't. unpack that for us a little bit <laughs> like what it, it means i don't i don't really have any permanent rules but i'm basically a good person so okay. i'm spiritual because i'm a good person right okay. spiritual equals good in that uh okay and the focus is you know sort of a result of postmodernism. so i went from being like a, a feminist a kind of probably conservative feminist which the early feminist movement wasn't radical at all mm-hmm. uh, but then i just followed along with it um it's really part of postmodernism. there's no definition anymore you know, yeah. definitions are always shifting. Um, right. So it's that's what happened to the mainline de- denominations. Okay. They just began accepting the sin after that sin and just not, if not accepting them, at least not talking about it. And, yeah. um, and they just went further and further left until what's left of them in the United States are a lot of very beautiful uh, buildings that were built um, hundreds of years ago, and they're still gorgeous, but there's nobody in them. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to something that looks like a, you know, could have been a dance hall yesterday. <laughs> it's got all these chairs in it, and it's yeah. a, a, you know, there's an on-fire preacher up there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, uh, um, I have seen, I have seen some churches in the left, which aren't anywhere close to selling their building and having it torn down or anything like that. They, mm-hmm. they do have people that are, that are there yeah. and want to be there and give their money and give their time and are interested in learning more about um, that expression of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, help help us let's try to figure out like what so they're they're just as uh, vibrant as they were before well i don't i'm not i guess i'm not talking about their the history there i just i just know that they there exist churches on the left that aren't like you know prepared to collapse um but um do actually still have people in them and um and and young people too and old people and in that um but um what what tends to how would you i how would you recognize a church or a christians on the left like what sorts of markers would you sort of look for if you walked into a church and said you know, wonder what kind of church this is. <laughs> and then, you know, you see this happening or that happening. What are what are some things you could look out for just to help us get a sense of what we're what it means to be on the left? You're welcome to use Dallas as a crutch here. This is no problem. <laughs> oh, Dallas could do it better than I. Um, you would hear 
sermons that made everybody feel good. Okay. And um, that didn't concentrate much on sin. Okay. And or or maybe even at all, we would hear a lot of those. You would have very well dressed people in general. You know, okay. I don't I don't think there are many of those churches where people who are lower class or um, or middle class even I mean low middle class would actually be attending. It's usually more slightly more like a social club, and okay. um, I mean the people are nice. They're going to be nice and they're going to be yeah. friendly yeah. and. Yeah. Um, but uh, Christ is not going to be the center of the sermons. Um, a lot of it will be about social issues. Yeah. So that's, well, that doesn't always make me feel good. Uh, social issues. I mean, somebody is pointing out my injustices, um, ways in which I'm ruining the planet uh, or <laughs> ruining other people's lives that live across the world or in some yeah. other part of the city. Um, right? That's not necessarily feel-good feel good stuff. Yeah, I don't think that that's going to be the dominant uh, message that you get. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah. I mean, you know if you, okay, so, so you go into those churches, and we all know that poverty is an issue, right? Okay, yeah. So they, right. have, a, they have a fund. They have a, they'll have a fund for... People who are poor, or mm -hmm. people that that they hear, people of even their own members who have had really bad experiences, all of a sudden and have lost things, and um, and you'll have there will be a section, a part of that church that donates to the poor, that mm -hmm. you know fills bags for the poor in India, food yeah. and you know yeah, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um. But. But it's not about your the transformation of yourself no <laughs> no not about the transformation of yourself no it's not about it's not about the sins we have right as no it's no it's not about the sins we have and that's that's really what Dallas is is after here yeah. when he's trying to criticize um the gospel on the left or people that that teach it he's right. saying that you can focus on social issues. You can give people a nice place to come to where they feel mm -hmm. loved and accepted. Um, you can have wonderful music and a wonderful mm -hmm. church building. And you can still have people who go there for 30 years of their life and they don't come out looking any more like Jesus than they did when they went in. Right. And that's what he wants to say. Why should that be the case? And, uh, but I, I, I think, and tell me if you're, tell me if you think I'm on the right track with this. Um, the, the issue is not whether you're concerned about social issues or not. I mean, I know that you're, you're concerned about many social issues, you know, education being one of them. Um, but it's not as if you just walk into one church and you see that they're interested in social issues and you think, well, that must be a, a liberal leftist church. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but what is the thing is these social issues have moved to the center of what that church is doing and is about. 
the center of the liberal church? Yes, that that you I would know, it's, say that's not the center of it. That's okay. the uh, that's what they um, that's what they do in compensation for what the center is. Ooh, okay, okay. That's yeah. that. There was a lot of heat <laughs> on that statement, but. <laughs> I you think know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of parroting <laughs> Dallas here a little bit um, with and and maybe he's being extra generous. Um, but um, go a little slower for us. What what? Well, I mean, what, Dallas says, you know, it's not not necessarily connected to individual li- the individual lives. Right. Yeah. Um, he says it doesn't really affect their relationship with their neighbor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, it's not really connected to a serious life and transformation. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. he calls life in abundance. Um, yeah. Let's uh, let me let me read there what he says so we actually okay, have that good. kind of on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, he says the current gospels, left and right exhibit the very same type of conceptual disconnection from and practical irrelevance to the personal integrity of believers. And certainly so, if we put that integrity in terms of biblically specific Christ-likeness. Right. And both lack any essential bearing upon the individual's life as a whole, especially upon occupations or work time, and upon the fine texture of our personal relationships in the home and neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So, I guess it seems to me that he wants to say something like, you want to see the world change. Um, then going about it in kind of these high-level theoretical ways isn't going to work. What will work is entering into a relationship with Jesus in which he transforms your character Mm -hmm. Right. And soul. Right. And then you might be in a place to help somebody else. Right. Right. I mean, I think in the churches, I mean, I'm not saying this is really bad because this is the good, you know, it's a good thing that they do. I think these churches do have programs that, um, that help the poor or whatever the issue is, right? They do have them. Um, I'm not sure that they spend a large amount of their money on them, but they, mm. they have them. They still have them. Um, trying to think of a study I saw. I, I can't, I don't think I can call it up well enough right now, but it was, it was a study that the wealthier people necessi- don't necessarily do more than in the poor in the churches yeah so yeah well i have i 
I'm in a position to see a number of people who give, um, both people who give to me and who give and support churches and other things. And I see in incredible amounts of giving from people who you would think mm -hmm. don't have a lot. Right. And, and I will also see, you know, sometimes I see the numbers and I see how, um, somebody who has a lot of means, um, will give the same amount as what somebody who has a lot fewer means gives. Right. Um, they give it all at once usually, but that person who has less usually just kind of gives step right. by step. Plods along, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, and so there's a lot... Uh, <clears throat> uh, where does... It, I mean, where that comes from is that those people of, you know few means have been transformed by Jesus and they trust him mm. enough to just yeah. let their money go. It's like the woman in the gospel who puts her last two pennies in the, in the offering yeah. plate. And Jesus says she gave more than anybody else. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. Well, um, Mary, we've, we haven't heard um, how you actually got to know Dallas. This isn't Dallas. <laughs> I always, when I, I always pull up the books here as if there's uh -huh. the people, but, um, <laughs> how, how did that come about? Okay. So I was a new Christian at a university and I think it was a person from probably from like campus crusade or something who said you need to uh-huh let me get this right you're this isn't your student yeah. days right yeah so no new christian at the university new, new christian at the university i'm now, i've been a professor for over 20 years i'm now tenured yeah i'm not yeah. a christian right yeah. okay so <laughs> so someone um came to me i think once you say once you're a christian in a university somehow it gets around the to to mm -hmm. people who would help you, I guess. And, um, well, would, they would help you. And so, um, I was, um, I had never seen, I had never seen, uh, an academic, really a serious Christian academic speak. Mm -hmm. And they suggested I go and see Dallas Willard. And he was doing a, either a one or two day workshop where he was speaking several times. And, um, I went up and introduced myself or somebody introduced me, I think really. And, um, and he was very, very kind. One of I, but I always noticed that he had these amazing insights. Yeah, and yeah. I remember when I, uh, first came to Christ and was first introduced to him, he, he treated me more, he, it was more like a father, you know? which mm -hmm. is what I really needed anyway. I needed yeah. to see, I needed somebody who could lead me, who knew where I was supposed to go, who was in academia, who was, you know, really uh, very well, knew Christ very well. I guess he's um, he not, he's probably 20 years older than you or something, something yeah, like that. Yeah, he's probably 20 years older than me. Yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah. So... So then I just uh, began to follow him around, you know, follow where I knew he was going to speak. And, mm -hmm. um, and he was 
he was always there. I, I think that he, he did that with, he could, he could talk to anyone. So uh, being an atheist didn't bother him at all. <laughs> that I had been an atheist didn't bother him. Um, but he was very kind. Um, yeah. And then I began to really study some of his work. I mean, he's just so brilliant. Yeah, you know, he, yeah. He writes totally as a philosopher, which is hard for me because that's, you know, social scientists are not really philosophers. But um, but I went to hear him speak many, many times. And yeah, I was yeah. really grateful. He, he, I think one of the advantages he had was he spent his time in philosophy classrooms. So not only are you reading, you, you know, major your whatever plato um or kant or um 20th century philosophy but then you're working with students all the time right right but you know his other advantage was he had been a farmer okay yeah yeah and i think he that that's an unusual combination for a person of his intellect to also have that kind of grounding but, um, I mean, he didn't yeah. even want to go to college. Somebody found him and said, you know, you need to go to college, right? Yeah. I think it's his, his, in his story. His brother um, uh, encouraged him to go. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there was also, he came from a family where there wasn't just money around right. to go to college. And yeah. there weren't, like, you know, elaborate federal loan systems nope. and, and all of that. I mean... Going to college was a serious, right? Serious endeavor. It's like buying a house, right? <laughs> and right. <laughs> uh, so he kind of managed to go. I mean, he went to, in a sense, the cheap school that was in his kind of tradition. And uh, well, I guess he didn't stay at the cheap schools. Um, USC isn't isn't no. a cheap school. <laughs> Yeah, that one doesn't qualify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No college qualifies these days. Yeah. That's very expensive to go to college. Yeah. Well, he was so, um, what, I, what, what I hear you saying and what the word I have for it is winsome. Mm. Right? So somebody mm -hmm. comes at him with a kind of, kind of a hostile question. Mm -hmm. Right. And... Or, or maybe a, a genuine sort of question, um, mm -hmm. but he just had ways of of opening people's minds um, yeah. to sort of look at it in a new way. And he always he, he tried to do it as gently as possible. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. He um, yes, he was very. He was. He took everything seriously. He didn't, you know. He took a person seriously, even if they were, you know, a little kid like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. didn't know anything. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Thank you so Thank much, you. Mary, Thank for you. this. Um, Great to see you. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can um, piece this together for something that's actually helpful for everybody. But um, <laughs> thanks for being here. And um, thank you. to all of you, thank you for watching and listening and if you want to know more about sanctus institute well probably you should check out some of our other videos and some of the other things in this series of conversations with guests 
Um, there's also this website that I've mentioned, Sanctus.Institute, where you can sign up for a newsletter. Woohoo! Um, but um, behind Sanctus is just an interest in helping Europeans find a Christ-empowered spirituality. And um, if you're watching this this far, you're probably interested in that as well. So thanks for being here. Bye. Okay. All right. Now we're in Boston. Now we are in Boston, yes. <laughs> I don't know how that last one came out, but you can probably piece it all together.